to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Oh, I had a couple more announcements real quick. As you're turning to Psalm 78. Um, so last year, the men went through uh, our men's study on the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, this year, we're going to be doing, as kind of our midweek uh, discipleship teaching thing, we're going to be doing church history. Um, and we're going to be doing just the first four centuries. We're, how we're going to do it this time is last year we met every other Tuesday night. This time we're breaking it up into blocks, like eight or nine week blocks straight. And this time it will be on Monday nights. So eight or nine weeks. Uh, actually, I think this is nine. Nine weeks for this first session on Monday nights from 630 to 830 p.m. And we're going to be doing the first of maybe four parts of church history. And uh, this one is called Heretics and Heroes. Uh, and we'll be learning about the stories of uh, key figures in the first couple of centuries of church history. So uh, how many hear word church history and think boring? My wife was the only one who Because <laughs> she's like, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. Uh, that was a great promo. Thanks, sweetie. Uh, so no, we're going to be... Uh, so, but, and so it's I'm glad that nobody else at least didn't raise their hand. It is really fascinating to learn church history. We're not going to be learning in just like dates and places and events. We will have all of those things worked in. This is like the stories. There are very fascinating stories about these individuals and about how the church was wrestling to find out like what, what is true. What has God revealed to us as a teaching would kind of pop up here and the whole church would have to come around and go, wait a second. I don't, I don't think that's right. And then they would work, work it out. And, um, and so there were these battles between heretics and heroes. And they're very fascinating stories. And as a matter of fact, like, you know, like in some of these, like fist fights broke out. I mean, how cool is that? Like at a church meeting, people are upset. <laughs> people are upset today because you say, like, you know, disagree with something you post online. You're like, man, you don't know how bad it used to be. Um, so the first, uh, for, so the first four centuries, we're going to look at heretics and heroes. That starts in, uh, is that three weeks from tomorrow? Two weeks from tomorrow. So uh, September twenty seventh. Please come and let me know if you are interested in coming because where it's going to be will be depending upon how many uh, people are coming. And this is not just the men, by the way. This is open for anybody, anybody in the church who wants to come. So uh, Heretics and Heroes, the first four centuries. Um, and then uh, next week, uh, we will be doing the intro to a new series on Amos. So it's been a while, apart from the Psalms, it's been a while since we have done an Old Testament book. And so we're going to be looking at the prophet of Amos. And we'll periodically go through all of the minor prophets uh, over the next uh, six years or so. And we will... Uh, uh, now, don't, don't worry. This is, this is going to last about seven or eight weeks. So it'll be September into October, maybe November. So um, uh, this will be the beginning of a, a series that we will pop in and out of on the Minor Prophets. So those are coming up. Psalm 78. I invite you to turn to Psalm 78. And I will read the first eight verses as our scripture reading, and then in the teaching, we will end up reading the whole psalm as we go through the, through the exposition. So 
So Psalm 78, verse, uh, verses 1 through 8. A masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now in these next few moments that, um, uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what wonderful things you have for us in your scriptures, and that the meditation of um, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We ask you to do this in the name of Christ. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in the Bible behind Psalm 119. It's the second longest psalm. And it is also a historical psalm. Now, what does this mean? There's several psalms, I think like 105, 106 also. There are a couple of others that recount or are retelling parts of Israel's history. And we're going to get to that from verses 9 through uh, verse 40 or 72. We will be looking at uh, some elements of Israel's history at the time that this was written. And this is a historical psalm. And uh, I want to wanted to begin with the introduction here because it lays out for us the main issue, the main issue for, uh, or the main goal that this psalm is uh, given to us for. Here's the main problem. Well, where is it? There it is. The main problem in this psalm is forgetfulness and faithlessness. Forgetfulness and faithlessness. So let me go back here to the beginning. And he recounts for all of the people. He tells them in these kind of, because I want to tell them a parable. I want to kind of, uh, these dark sayings from of old, I want to kind of explain for you as he's going to go and recount some of Israel's history. These are not just disparate events that happen throughout history. What he's going to explain to them is that all of these events are happening for a purpose. And there's a pattern that you can see developing in them. And this is what he wants to show them in this psalm. Their main problem, as we see in verse 7, 
or the main goal in recounting all of this is that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they were to remember the works of God and the words of God, and that they were not to rebel against God. That's notice verse 8. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. They were to remember and not to rebel. They were to trust and be faithful and not disbelieve and be faithless. So let me walk through this psalm here, and then we want to end with kind of how we want to apply this, the main message here, verses 1 through 8. Notice this pattern. There is, it begins with a preface, and then there's a, a retelling of the redemptive acts of God. Then there's a, a statement about God's care and provision for them. And then there's a statement about how even in the midst of God's redemptive acts and the care and provision for them, there was a provocation uh, of them. They're provoking God to anger and to wrath. And then at last, a statement of, of God's mercy in spite of all of that. And this will happen in two acts or two parts. The first one is the great acts of God in the Exodus, verses 9 through 39. And then I'll just give them to you here. Uh, the great acts of God up to, from the Exodus up to David's kingdom. Because this would have been the time in which this was composed. So laying it out for us there. Let, now let's go through and read this passage. Having understand this pattern. And then uh, we'll make some comments as we go. Notice the preface of part one. The survey of God's mighty acts in the Exodus. Where he says in verse nine. The Ephraimites armed with the bow. Turned back on the day of battle. Um, now. The exact event here is possibly, we're not quite sure, it maybe is an event of when Saul was king, maybe First uh, Samuel 30, or verse Samuel chapter 31, but apparently a very well-trained, right, armed with the bow, very skilled Ephraimites were turned back on the day of battle, and this is significant because if you understand the history at this point, they had been given and promised the land to go in and take. The Lord God, I will give you this land. But they turned back from the battle and basically they were defeated. Why? They did not keep God's covenant. Verse 10. They refused to walk according to his law. And they, for, you notice the pattern here, faithlessness and, verse 11, forgetfulness. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Now it kind of starts with this this loss of this battle that they were guaranteed to win but they lost because of their disbelief their faithlessness and forgetting the good things and wonderful things god has done so now the psalmist goes back and reminds them here's all those good things remember back to the exodus verse 12 in the sight of their fathers he performed wonders in the land of egypt in the fields of zoan that's a city in egypt so this is kind of Poetic statement there. Verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. This is the acts of God, the redemptive acts of God. And then notice the, the statement about his care and provision. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. 
He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused the waters to flow down like rivers. Remembering the care and provision of the Lord God over the people of Israel as they were brought out from their slavery in Egypt. But notice the the provocation to wrath, verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. The background here is Exodus chapter 16 or Numbers chapter 20. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, and now he gives a quote summarizing, paraphrasing what they had said back in in Exodus and in Numbers. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Now, these are this is not a, a rhetorical statement. This is a little bit doubtful or dismissive. Notice verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Jacob and Israel, just two names, the synonyms, they're two names for the same uh, people of God. And here's why. Because they did not believe in God and trust and did not trust in his saving power. Faithlessness. Forgetfulness and faithlessness. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings and they ate and were well filled for he gave them what they craved. Right. You remember these stories from Exodus and from numbers. This is the Lord's provision for his people, his care for his people. And yet it's in the middle of that that they provoke him to wrath. Why? Because of their forgetfulness and their faithlessness. Notice verse 30. But, be, but before they had satisfied their craving, and this is what gets me every time, and what a convicting thing this is. While the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Can you imagine thinking back to the Israelites of old as they were complaining against God and the way it's said here, it's like their, their food is being spit out as they're complaining about God's lack of provision. It's a statement about how well, how well and gracious and abundance God's provision is. And yet they still, in the middle of being fed, would doubt his goodness and graciousness and faithfulness. It's kind of convicting because it does make me kind of think. How many, how many times in the middle of God's faithfulness to me have I complained about his absence or perceived absence or what he is not there and he's not working? While, in the, while 
the evidences of it are all around me. Have you ever experienced this? Being in the midst of God's blessings and then still complaining about him being there and being present. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. And he killed them. They sought, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. And now we move to the phase of speaking of God's mercy here. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. So in other words, maybe a picture here, of maybe a fake repentance or a partial repentance or a temporary repentance with no real change of life that accommodated it. Maybe a, they made a verbal profession, flattering them with their mouths, lied to them with their tongues, but they lacked the inward reality, verse 37, in their heart, they were not steadfast to him. But even in that moment, notice the mercy of God, verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. This is part one of this survey through Israel's history up to this point to show the pattern of all of these disparate events as you're retelling Israel's history. And the, the, the psalmist here is saying, oh, you, if, you need to think of this more like a parable. This is a saying from old. You need to understand how all of these pieces come together. There's a lesson here. There's a lesson in these. Look at part two, a survey of God's mighty acts. And this time he takes them, he jumps back he flashes back to Egypt again, and now he takes us all the way to, to David's kingdom. And then notice the similar pattern here. Here's the preface, verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. And then what was, what's the main presenting problem? They did not remember his power. Specifically, you could say they did not choose to remember because it's speaking about them being in that event at that moment. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he had performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. That's the preface. Now, here's the retelling of God's redemptive act. And this one's a little longer. He, this is the Lord God, Yahweh, he turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and uh, their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave them their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, 
the first fruits of their strength to the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. Again, retelling this watershed moment in Israel's history about the exodus of his people out of their bondage of slavery. Here's a note again of his provision, verse 54. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which, uh, which his right hand had won. He drove out the nations before them. He appointed them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. And then now the provoking to anger. Yet they tested and rebelled against the holy, the most high God, and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places, that the um, altars, temples to worship to various gods would be put on the highest of hills. So this is a reference to their places of false worship. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Provoking to anger, and a deserved anger. Why? Because of their forgetfulness and their faithful, faithlessness. But then notice again, always a note of God's mercy, verse 65. Then the Lord awoke from his sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. This is a reference to the rejection of the northern kingdom. And Saul, even though he was a Benjaminite, um, he was kind of connected to that northern, the northern kingdom of Israel. And here he's saying... He's rejected that northern kingdom and he's decided he's choosing Judah. And he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, verse 69, like the earth, which he had founded forever. And he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. Notice again the Jacob and Israel here. He's talking about his his. The true Israel there. That God in his mercy, even in the midst of all of the rebellion that has happened, he had still chosen a tribe. He'd still chosen a place to set his sanctuary. And then he had chosen his servant, David. In verse 1772, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. And that's the end of the psalm. That's where it ends right there, because that was the, the history up to that point. But notice the pattern. This is what the writer here of this psalm wants you to notice. There's a pattern here. It's instructive. 
Recounting Israel's history is a lesson. It's a reminder that even in the midst of God's amazing, gracious activity, to remember and recall his wonderful deeds and have that to be a cause for faithfulness to him. Okay? That's the lesson here. So that was the main, the main problem. Let me jump ahead here to the main problem. The main prevention to the problem, the lesson that this psalm gives, is this. Families passing down the faith. If the main problem that we see repeatedly through the psalm is forgetfulness of God's mighty actions, which then leads to faithlessness and abandoning of the faithfulness and trust in Yahweh. What the psalmist here at the beginning is stressing for, for all of us is that the way to prevent this is families passing down the faith. Let's go back to the beginning verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, meaning their descendants, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders he has done. What's the remedy for faith, forgetfulness and faithlessness is families passing down the faith. He established a testimony in Jacob and, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. And here's the main purpose. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. That's it, right there in verse, verse 7. The purpose of families passing down the faith is so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Verse 5, it says they established a testimony in, uh, in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. It might be helpful to kind of recap some of these things and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter uh, 12. Let me give you just kind of a recounting of the emphasis here of what the psalmist is talking about in verse in this psalm, Psalm 78. This is repeated all throughout the scriptures. Let me give you a survey of some. Even in the middle of the Exodus, as in the middle of bringing his people out of their bondage of slavery and protecting them from the last plague that was poured out on Israel, he says, oh, by the way, I want you to have a meal, Passover meal. Mark it that night. Don't do it a year later. You do it that night and you mark this meal. And then notice what it says at the end. Exodus chapter 12 verses, let's say verse 20. Um, verse, let's start in verse uh, 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that was in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts. Door with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter 
your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Okay, remember the, the applying of the blood to the doorposts in the middle of celebrating this Passover meal. Verse 25, and when you come to the land that the Lord your God will give you as he had promised, you shall keep this service. You're going to keep doing it. Verse 26, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. Notice that phrase. As you do this, your children are going to ask, hey, what does this mean? What does this mean? The Lord has established this so that they would be able to pass this down from generation to generation. Notice Exodus chapter 13. Notice verse 14. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Famous passage. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest of all the commandments in the law? This is the debate was raging in those days. Jesus gave him two. He gave him one from Deuteronomy. This passage here, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's one of the most important prayers in the Bible uh, for, for ancient Jews, uh, even up to today. It's one of the most important things. It's one of the first words that they would teach um, in very pious Jewish homes. They would teach them this. It's referred to as the Shema. Here, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That sound familiar? That's what Jesus was asked, which is the greatest. This is the one he quotes. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. A lot of uh, ancient Jews would do this seriously. They would put these, these scripture verses and put them in a box and actually tie them on their hands and actually tie them on their heads. Have you ever seen the, uh, a Jewish uh, rabbi or something have a box strapped to his head? That's, that's what they're doing here. Um, I think it's a little more metaphorical here. Like, no, this should be in your mind. You should have these in your mind. Have you ever seen the, uh, the mezuzahs on the, the houses that's put on the doorpost of the house? That's this verse here. But notice the emphasis is like immediately. And you should pass, you should impress these upon your children. It should be when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you get up. Notice in later in that chapter. Verse 20. And when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Well, then you should say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of his commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Right? Again, anticipating the question as you're being faithfully observing, faithfully demonstrating faithfulness to the Lord, your children are going to go, okay, so what is this? What does this mean? And the Lord God scripts them with the story. Notice that all of these, these responses, especially this last one, it's very reminiscent of Psalm 78. This is what the Lord has done. Recounting the words and works of the Lord. Let me give you a couple more. There's, there's other scriptures there you can see. I think it's also in the handout. Um, but in Joshua, you see the same thing as they're crossing the river. What does these mean? When your children ask you in, in time to come, what do these stones mean? Or Joshua verse 21 of chapter 4. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? And then Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul picking up on this importance of parents passing down the faith to their children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So this is. The main problem is forgetfulness and faithlessness. The main prevention that's given for us is for families to pass down the faith. It kind of shift gears a little bit here. Just kind of tell a, a story. Um, many, several years ago at here at Redeemer, we had kids' classes. We had like nursery and we'd have some other kids' classes. Um, and then when the pandemic came, we didn't have that. And then when we started back up again, we didn't have it. And so we were, um, we, we were, we've been kind of, what was called family integrated. Now, what does that mean is the kids are in here in the worship service with us. So we don't segregate out the kids and, and everything. We used to. We used to do that. Um, but we kind of have been family integrated by accident. And the accident has continued to the present. Um, today, I'd like to propose that we be family integrated on purpose and intentionally this way. And the reason why is because of the verses in Scripture that we have just read. The importance of all of the children, all of the community being there. Especially that Ephesians passage. As Paul's writing this letter. It's to be read in the church. And he addresses fathers. He addresses masters and he addresses slaves. And then he addresses children. They're there in the service. There's a lot of talk uh, in recent years, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, about the real crisis of, of Christian kids 
going to college and leaving the faith. There's all kinds of statistics. How many of you have heard statistics about this, right? And so there's a lot of debate about those statistics and what they, they really mean. Uh, there's been a, nas- a big study called the National Study on Youth and Religion, uh, and it was published uh, in um, a book called Soul Searching. Some of you, I think, have read this book, Soul Searching. Um, and it talks about what was, what was happening. Why, why are these kids... What kind of faith do these kids have growing up? And then what did they come up with when they get to college? And it was interesting is what they, what they classified and termed what it was that characterized the belief of these young people. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Which is moralistic was, well, there's a God and he wants you to be good. Therapeutic is, there's, there's a God and he wants you to be happy. And the deism part is, there's a God and he kind of started all this thing, but he's very distant and far off. As they would interview these people, and it would be from, it would be Jewish people, it would be Catholic Christians, it would be Protestants. They would, they would interview all of these kids and they would try to get a sense of what it was that they actually believed. And the way they classified it was moralistic therapeutic deism. That's not... That's not orthodox doctrine. That's not a really solid grasp of the gospel. These kids were leaving and going away to college and leaving the faith. And as I looked at this, the data, I'm thinking uh, it's not so much they left the faith. They never had it. They never had it. And I think one of the, the problems for me, and this is coming from somebody who grew up uh, who, who cut my teeth in youth ministry. I was a junior high pastor for many years. I did children ministry, youth ministry for a long time. And one of the things that I learned immediately in doing children and youth ministry is, man, there's, these kids are going to resemble their parents. No matter what I do in the hour or two hours or three hours I get with them every week, they're going to resemble their parents spiritually, not just physically. They do, but spiritually, they, re- they resemble their parents. And whatever they were getting at home is what made the difference. And so I've, let me kind of summarize by saying, I think one of the big problems, one of the big problems that contributes to this issue of kids leaving the faith, if they ever had it, was that they, uh, or leaving the church, is that they were never really apart. One of the terms that's used to describe this, and you may have, if you've heard me say this at a, at a home group before, is that the church typically looked like what they say is a one-eared Mickey Mouse. There was an entire youth culture, almost kind of like a, a youth church culture that was connected, kind of only just touching a church. You got the picture of a one-eared Mickey Mouse. So these kids, so you'd go to church and then the families would be over here at the church. The parents would go here, but the, the kids would go to another youth culture and they hardly would they ever even really connect. Parents were basically outsourcing the task of discipleship and passing down the faith to the professionals. And this was a hard thing for me to realize because I was the professional. But if I was to be honest about the situation, 
If I wanted to be honest and like, how do we really reach these kids? Well, then I think we got a problem here. So I think in some ways that this has been a blessing that we have moved from accidentally family integrated to being intentionally family integrated. Amen. I'm up here by myself. (laughs) So to that end, then it's not just saying, well, we don't we don't have a a youth class for for kids on Sunday mornings. We have to do more than just that. We have to really help parents and families to be able to do and talk about these things, to pass the faith down, uh, to teach the next generation that they may Uh, that they uh, might know them, that they should set their hope on God and not forget his works. And so to do that, I I have come across a resource that I think would be very helpful. So a couple of deacons, can I get some help passing these out? Get one for family. We may have more, perhaps. Oh, let me get some. And then if you... Maybe you could take a peek. One per family at least. We might be able to have more to go around. Let me give you a, a recommend this resource. And this is a guide for family worship. Now, family worship sounds maybe kind of sound uh, a little intimidating for some of you. And I totally get it. I totally understand. For some of you would be like, well, I think what you're describing is is something that we kind of already do with our kids. And that's wonderful. Like we already read the Bible together and we pray together. Wonderful. That's awesome. Keep that up. For some families, you're like, well, we, you know, we haven't really done that. We haven't done it very well, but we would like to. Then then just consider this guide as as a helpful guide for you in this. Notice that there are 30 days in this. Let's turn to the first one here. There's 30 days of family worship. And there's just six simple parts. There's a short memory verse. There's a couple of uh, catechism questions that are easy. uh, Kids catechism. I think it's called a catechism for small children. Um, There is a paragraph from a confession of faith. The one that the, the men just went through this last year. It's one paragraph. And then there is a a prayer for us and then a song or a hymn that can be sung. And so it's, you know, kind of easy. Just kind of open the book together as a family and then kind of say, hey, let's work on this memory verse and then do the memory verse together and then do some of the catechism questions. And then just take turns reading this passage. And then pray. Somebody can pray. And then you can sing the hymn. Now, we've done some devotions like this for families, and we, we never really sang before. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, we opened up our book around the uh, dinner table at Sunday lunch, and then I pulled out the little Bluetooth jam box thing, and we actually played the song, and we sang the song. And let me tell you, it's, it's every bit as awkward as you would think <laughs> at first, at first. Uh, but afterwards, we were like, that is really, really cool. What an awesome thing it was for us to sing these songs together as a family. And, and to sing these classic old hymns together as a family. 
Um, I heard somebody say one time commenting about kind of the new, newer worship music that is out today. And they said, which is nothing wrong with, with those songs and stuff. But their, their comment was, I, I just have a hard time picturing gathering around the, the bedside of somebody, of a relative who's dying, and us all singing the new songs, right? And so what a great way for families to be singing them together around the table. There's 30 days. So there's a couple of ways that you could do this. One is... You could just open up to whatever the date is. So today is the 12th. You would open up to the 12th, and you could do the 12th that day. Um, and if you want to do that, so whatever day it is, and say you only do it three days a week, three nights a week together around the, the dinner table, or maybe it's for breakfast before you start uh, homeschool or whatever in the morning, and you could open up that day and just kind of go through that, that passage that day. Totally, totally fine. Um, but... But Rachel had given a great suggestion of maybe doing one day every day that week, especially for smaller kids. And so, because you're sitting here and you go, well, there's a memory verse and then there's, you know, five uh, catechism questions. Maybe it might be helpful to then work on all of those that week. Either way would be a good approach. But what what I was, what I'm uh, going to propose to do is that I'm going to send an email out every week. And reminding you about this for this coming week, uh, encouraging you to do this, and then I will do that every week. As so, day one will be this week, day two this next week, and you know, etc. On down. And it just so happens I think we're thirty weeks from this week till Easter Sunday. What cool thing would it be for us as an entire church family for all of the families individually to be doing family worship at home? And so, this is for you. I commend this to you. Did all of them go out? Do you have some? There's some, there's some extras. Um, I, so, at least every family take one today. And, uh, and I will be sending out some kind of more email instructional things and, and motivational things uh, for you. Amen? Amen? So, let me read. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that. They should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for families that you have placed us in. The basic functional unit of society. And we thank you that your word has given us instructions and the task of passing this down in our homes and our families. God, help us as we endeavor to do that, that we could tell the story of your redemptive work over and over to our children, that they would hear and that they would believe, that they would not suffer faithful, faithlessness 
from their forgetfulness, but would receive and believe and trust because they have remembered your mighty deeds. Help us to that end. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. And let's stand for one closing song.
Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.
Everybody. Get them. 